1: This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network.
2: This is a league of A's and BCs. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages, and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West. Wheat versus iron. Love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country. A league of Jacksons, Kwangs, Johnsons, Moskas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league.
3: Welcome to the 55-yard line here with Scott and Greg and Sports History Network and CFL America Radio, we were where we are delighted to be joined today uh, from, from Vancouver by the president of Football Canada, who's also a member of the selection committee of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame and host of Gridiron Nation at TSN, Jim Mullen. Hey, Jim, thanks for joining us and uh, happy to have you here to talk CFL history, Canadian football history, and hopefully some BC Lions history, too.
1: Oh yeah, I, I think I can cover those bases. I think I've been around long enough that 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 I have a few stories to tell. Cool. Yeah, the
4: BC Lions was kind of my gateway team into the CFL because uh, they started showing in the states the games in the early seventies. And Johnny Musso, who had just played at Alabama, you know, played for the BC Lions. So there was some. That was really how the Canadian Football League first got some press in Alabama, or the first time I remember it.
1: Well, Johnny Musso, uh, who uh, played, I believe at the time, with quarterback Don Moorhead at Michigan. Uh, And Musso started as number 21, ended up wearing number 22. They took it out of retirement. Um, Points to you guys, if you can uh, remember who originally wore 22 and had his number retired.
4: I fail. (laughs) I can't remember.
1: I will say that he went. He 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 started in a Super Bowl. Cap, Joe Cap, Joe Cap is the correct (laughs) answer. And and then and then uh, Joe Cap came back as general manager of the BC Lions in in uh, 1990. They brought uh, Doug Flutie in. and Re-unretired his number again, so Doug Flutie could wear number twenty-two with the BC Lions. That explains there's, it. So that's why there, that there's number quite did a not history register. There, man. Yeah, there's quite a history around that number in the BC Lions football team.
3: Well, um, so Flutie was with the BC Lions for how many years?
1: Uh, two years.
3: Okay, and was B? And refresh my memory. Was BC
1: his first stop in the CFL? BC BC was his first stop, and you know it was really unfortunate. We had a flamboyant owner here by the name of Murray Pesum. Uh He was a he was a stock promoter mainly of mines, and, and um, the 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 stock exchange in the uh, in Vancouver at the time was the Vancouver Stock Exchange, and, and they said Howe Street, which it was on, was the was the uh, only street uh in canada when the sun was up both sides were shady <laughs> and so he, like 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 he had he was a guy that um, was bust and boom all the time and and for a while he had a uh a a good run with the bc lions um as a as an owner uh but then he decided to play hardball with Doug Flutie and Went to the province newspaper here in Vancouver. Uh, basically said, "This is the offer. Take it or leave it." And he left it. And he went to Calgary as a free agent, and and that's where the uh, that's where the rest of uh, Doug Flutie's career went. Went to Calgary, then went to Toronto. Oddly enough, uh, that contract that uh, made uh, made to uh, Doug Flutie in Calgary at least three hundred thousand of it was never paid by the former owner of the Calgary Stamp to, to to Mr. Flutie before he moved on to Toronto. So
3: yeah, I've heard that story. Did uh he ever ever collect on it later in his no. career?
1: No. It's so sometimes we we know those of us who uh, who do a lot of things on contract, uh let's just uh let's just call it breakage. <laughs> like you know, you know, you know there there, there are some dollars that are never returning.
3: Right. Well, he, and, uh, you know, Doug Flutie has always been one of those guys that, you know, being in Chicago, I mean, I remember that brief, brief time he played for the Bears, just one of my favorite all-time players. But to me, he's always personified what the CFL has always been about. He's always been, you know, um, playing for the love of football, the underdog. And to me, and I know with what's been going on the last 18 months, obviously, the CFL has had a lot of issues going we're having a lot of issues going into the season with financially and with the pandemic and everything how are things looking in terms of the future with the cfl now that we're getting ready to start the season next week just in your opinion i mean to me i have a i my gut feeling is things are looking up things are going to look up once we get past this pandemic
1: well it depends what area code you live in uh, quite frankly I, I think if you're in western canada uh, there's going to be a good response to the product. I think in a place like Ottawa, where, they, uh, where OSEG, who uh, runs the team there and has uh, great roots in the community, uh, will find a way to, to bring people back to the park. I think Hamilton has the uh, Grey Cup on its side, and, and that'll, that'll certainly help what they do uh, in that community. Of course, that leaves out the, the three largest markets in this country. And, you know, the uh, Toronto uh, and MLSC will not quash rumors of possibly leaping to the XFL in 2023. Uh, The childhood friend um, of of one of the owners at uh, MLSC owns the Montreal Alouettes. And uh, I think those two teams are basically singing from the same songbook uh, when, when it comes to, you know, points of leverage to... Uh, use against uh, other uh, franchises in this league. And then you have the BC Lions that, was, that were uh, owned by David Braley um, uh, since the, uh, since the uh, late 1990s. Mr. Braley passed away uh, over a year ago now, and it's being run by the estate. And it's, it, it's kind of being run in, in auto mode right now with a, with a minimum uh, of, of investment until they can find an owner. No ownership group wants to touch this thing uh, until they get through this season and can properly evaluate. Um, certainly money will be lost in Vancouver uh, this year uh, due to uh, pandemic guidelines and, and the exposure in the city. You know, the, the one thing that, that's a little frustrating for me, and I, I've heard this echoed in a few places, Rob Vanstone, the, the writer out of Regina being, being one of them is, we don't see how the CFL right now is really changing their business model as they emerge from this pandemic. Um, they're 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 in a in a place where they're doing the same things, at least the the individual franchises are. And to a certain degree, they can't be blamed for that uh, because there were a lot of losses incurred through the uh, through the pandemic. Everybody was on hold. There were a lot of challenges, and they're doing things with a whole lot less staff. Uh, both at the uh, both at the league level, uh, and at the club level, uh, but you know one of the things that um, that no no change in in approach you know signals to me is that release that went out. Uh, I'd say it'd be about a month ago now about the XFL and the CFL breaking off talks. Were the words at the end that said "at this time" and that I pull, as soon as I read that, I thought, okay. <laughs> Let's wait for the other shoe to drop on this thing and, and see where it takes us the day after Grey Cup and, 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 and see where that discussion goes uh, after Grey Cup. So, you know, in terms of having a positive attitude about the league, I'm positive because it's back, because they're playing football. I guarantee you it's going to be some really sloppy, yet sometimes exciting football because it's sloppy, uh, you know, with, uh, with that time off and no, and no exhibition games. Um, but you know there are points of concern in the major markets. Maybe a way to uh, to address those points of concern would be through revenue sharing uh, from the richer teams. Oddly enough, in the smaller markets, sharing revenue with the Montreals, the Torontos, and the Vancouver's.
4: It's just you know from the outside looking in. I have a you know, you're looking at a league with only nine franchises, but to have so many factions, you know that's just. It's almost disturbing. You're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I mean, if if you can't get nine teams all on the same page, you know, you got a problem. But then again, you know, if you look at the different parts of the country and the different ownership groups, it, it makes sense that way. But still, you know, as an American who's a huge CFL fan has been one since, you know, the mid 70s. I just wanted to succeed. I don't care how it succeeds. I just want it to work.
1: Well, when you, when you talk about the ownership groups, they, they are vastly different. And part of that's inherited, uh, you know, in, in Western Canada, uh, the history of the, of the teams in, in the old WIFU all the way through to the Western Division, um, you know, right up until the 90s, all the teams were, were like the Green Bay they, they were They were community nonprofit, even though they made profit, organizations. Uh, the Lions went to uh, private ownership uh, in the late 1980s because of some financial problems and some and some poor planning, uh, quite frankly. The same thing happened uh, with the Calgary Stampeders in the uh, in the mid-80s. But the, the three most successful teams in this league are, are community nonprofits. They're Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Saskatchewan. So what you have in... In the Canadian Football League, is essentially you have three groups: you have the community nonprofits, you have uh, teams that are that are owned uh, for profit by MLSC by 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 Mr. Stern in, in Montreal, uh, to a certain degree OSEG, and then prior to Mr. Braley passing, you've got the philanthropists, right? You've got you've got the BCs. You got the Hamiltons. Calgary used to be in that pack, but now that they've moved to the Flames ownership group, they're more of a profit-driven organization. They've got you have got um, multimillionaires and billionaires who want to do something good for the community, don't really care about profit and loss. You've got others that that have to answer to to uh, um, stockholders and stakeholders, and, and they need to show a profit at some point in time. And then you've got community organizations who've got it locked um and maybe hesitant in terms of sharing their profits with an organization like MLse who pays Kyle Lowry 650 thousand dollars a night to uh, play basketball that's that that's money going out of Saskatchewan to a team in Toronto that owns the Raptors, the Leafs go down the line right that that would not be taking that money and reinvesting it in their community, to the two university teams, to the two junior teams, to the women's teams, to the, to the, to the minor teams, people, one of the issues uh, I think around people covering the CFL is they only see those nine teams. You know, I was on another podcast where, you know, I try uh, to try to explain the football in the United States is three very strong pillars, right? It's, it's high school, college, and professional and you're not shaking the foundation of, any of those three in Canada, it's an ecosystem. (laughs) Part of that is because we've got We've got, uh, you know, non-import players playing in the league, making up half the rosters. So if you start pulling away at at some of those foundations of those smaller groups that are spread out across the country as as massive as, as Canada with only about 37 million people, you have one of them collapse, then others around them can collapse. So, it, it, it's important to to when when we start talking about the uh, complexities of, of of ownership in the CFL. And you look at those nonprofits; they got a lot more people to answer to if they're making that decision before they ship money off to Montreal or or Vancouver to to fund losing operations.
3: Right. And in terms of football, Canada, do you in terms of with the CFL? Does football Canada have any influence on any CFL and the commissioner's office, any CFL decision-making, at least, you know, as it on, but the grassroots and marketing the game to, to Canadians?
1: Well, the CFL is an associate member of football Canada. That, that's something that uh, that we brought on board in, in the last couple of years. And uh, prior to uh, this June, uh, there basically their number two person was, was board of directors. Now he's the, now he's the CFL rep. And I'd say, I, I, I probably have conversations with Randy Ambrosi about two or three times a year uh, about where we're at. Um, Now, you know, our groups in in amateur football, when we saw the, the XFL thing emerging as a, as a story with on the bone. um, You know, we had a discussion about, how does this impact amateur football in Canada? And it would impact amateur football in Canada, at least the tackle game, uh, quite adversely if, if the CFL were to split off and, and run some other uh, rule set. So we communicated to the CFL that, that, you know, please consider our position. Well, the CFL is a business. They're going to make business decisions. Now, it, it's up to them whether they want to consider where amateur football is at maybe they're hoping that if they make changes we just fall into line but the cost of falling into that line if they if they switch rule sets if they if they uh cut out the canadian player which is a uh, we believe is a major incentive for universities to have programs um for for older uh players to stay engaged in the game to go to juniors uh junior programs and universities if that's cut out if Outcome is cut out. I think it has a, a, a adverse effect, and and so the CFL in their messaging to us is, you know, no decisions have been made yet. But if we make decisions, we're making decisions based on our business, not necessarily based on the way amateur football is in the country. Now that being said, there are a number of uh, very constructive and progressive voices within the CFL office. That 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 reach out to us and work with us on the programming that we've created uh, for for uh, for minor football and amateur football in the country, going all the way down to kids just starting out the ages of four or five, and 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 working with uh, with our provincial organizations who are our members to to get kids playing football. So it's it's a different uh, arrangement than what's in the, than what's in the United States. USA football is an organization that was built kind of as a marketing tool for football in the United States. Football Canada was formed in 1880. Uh, We we were the, we were the start of the sport in this country. In fact, our funding arrangement with the Canadian football league uh, goes back to 1966. We're the owners of the gray cup. They, they pay us every year in perpetuity, as long as they're around, to be trustees of the Grey Cup, so when they when they hand that trophy out, they're handing our trophy out. I did not <laughs> almost know <that>. under license. <laughs> the, the problem is that that they that that, that the uh, the folks at Football Canada it, um, or the Canadian Amateur Football Association at the time uh, came up with a number that sounded really good in nineteen sixty six dollars, and because it's in perpetuity, it's never grown since. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to jump in a time machine for that one.
4: It's like the minimum wage in the United States. It just doesn't change. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. We've got a flat line through a couple of generations. So, so
3: all that money I hear about people talking about having their name put on the gray cup, does that go to football Canada? Or I've no. heard it, some other podcasters talk about it and they're like, well, we're putting paying money to the CFL to get our name on the gray <laughs> cup. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds great, but who's getting the money? And so, so it's not going to football Canada.
1: No, no. And, and that, that, that pedestal, basically you get your name on the pedestal that they put the gray cup on. Right. right? Um, that, that pedestal is, it was, was, it was a smart way to for a number of the teams in the, in the CFL, I think to, to hold on to season ticket deposits during, during the pandemic and give fans the option. Oh, okay. of uh, you, you know hey you can do this and you know find a way to 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 keep the money in house because they need to they needed to find some inventive ways to keep the lights on through this
3: yeah yeah i know and i know just and scott and i have been talking about the history and kind of where the league's going i mean you know there's that subject always comes up at least amongst the younger crowd about video games and you know in terms of marketing the the league to the, to the younger Generation, what's um what's it like in out in Vancouver with the BC Lions in terms of the BC Lions within the community? Now I know the Lions were started in the late '50s, being the last I guess of the original CFL teams. What, how did the BC Lions start? They they were a community-owned organization. That's I think, right. What you said. That's right. How did that come yeah. about um, for the Lions to be to, for the how did how did the expansion to Vancouver happen?
1: well there was uh there there was a uh, there was a group uh that were aligned with the um Mariloma Athletic Club now now the Marilomas uh at the time ran ran a junior football team but they also ran a rugby team uh you know that they're a classic kind of european uh type type club in that they ran a number of different sports uh in uh, in vancouver and it was a group that was brought together uh, prior to the British Empire Games, which are now known as the Commonwealth Games. And uh, th- they knew that a, that a new stadium was being built um, uh, for those Commonwealth Games, Empire Stadium. Um, Seating back in that day, about 35,000. Um, by the time we got to the 70s, the official capacity was 30,229. Um so, so they they uh, they assembled um, uh, a nonprofit ownership group. They went to the uh, Western Interprovincial Football Union, and there were teams that were opposed to this um, expansion because they were afraid Vancouver, with their big thirty-five thousand seat stadium, was going to just dominate everyone and, and buy players from the United States, and and we know that that never really turned out to be the case with the BC Alliance. Um, but there were, there were things that were put in um, uh, subsequently in later years, as a result of that equalization, which is, which is similar to um, uh, pro, uh, profit or revenue sharing that's being talked about right now. We had a uh, gate equalization in this league uh, from I want to say the the late 1950s, early 60s, all the way through to the to the late 1970s, um, where where gates were split uh, for for teams and that revenue was shared across the board, uh, and and that was in part because of the fear of the Lions dominating through through massive crowds and 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 massive funds. Um, so it, you know it was very much a community effort. There was a team here in the 1940s. One year uh that played in the in, in the uh WIFU, the Vancouver Grizzlies. That's where the basketball team got their name. Uh, and it was started up by um uh by a group of people that were uh associated, I believe, with the Vancouver Athletic Club, but a number of, of sports writers as well. Uh one of Canada's uh, uh preeminent sports writers, Jim Coleman. Uh, I got to know him in his later years. Uh, told me about uh, putting the Vancouver Grizzlies together. But uh, as we know in this country, uh, the mountains and the distance from the coast keep us kind of kind of separate from the rest of the country uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, and there are a lot of challenges sometimes tying into the rest of the country.
4: Well, you would obviously know this much better than we would. Has there ever, or what's the most serious uh, play, I guess, that the NFL has ever made for the major markets in Canada or for, you know, whether Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto. Uh, I mean, I think we'd know about Toronto's flirtation, but I just wondered at any time in history, did it ever seem imminent that there really was going to be expansion, you know, of the NFL into Canada?
1: Well, I think there were a couple of phases of this um, and, and it, and it's run hot and cold through the years. Uh, I think, The first was in the WLAF when the Montreal machine landed there in the first uh, incarnation of the WLAF. And and in fairness, the Montreal Alouettes or the Concords uh, weren't in operation at that time. So it was an an open market for, uh, for American football to explore. Um, The uh, most obvious one uh, was uh, Rogers and uh, their play to bring the Buffalo Bills into, uh, into Toronto for the Bills in Toronto series, which oddly enough was, you know, really put together right on the heels of the Argos, generating some momentum in that market. I mean, uh, there were times when the, when the Toronto Argonauts were drawing regularly in the 40,000 range, 40 44,000 range, and the Blue Jays really took the wind out of their sails when they started to go on on runs towards uh, pennants and, and winning uh, back-to-back World Series, uh, but uh, in the uh, in, in the early 2000s, once ownership was settled, they were getting back into that mid twenty thousand range, which is good for the bottom two uh, rings of uh, of Skydome. Uh, after a, a successful Grey Cup and that they hosted in in two thousand seven. I mean that that's when the the Bills in Toronto series landed right on the heels of that, so. Um, I would also say this in Vancouver, uh, the Seattle Seahawks have done uh, an outstanding job of marketing in this region. They made a they made a decision, I want to say, about uh, 12 to 13 years ago to come up here with a caravan, be aggressive in the marketplace. And, you know, the the Seahawks were kind of stumbling around, uh, you know, uh, you know, back at, at that time. But they got their game together. They've captivated the imagination in this town. Um, uh, they have eight thousand season ticket holders in the in the lower mainland area and and Victoria that go to games on a regular basis, which is more than the BC Lions have as a as a season ticket base uh, these days. I never thought I'd be caught dead seeing that, but they've been aggressive in in the marketplace here, and it's paid off for them. Um, you know, John Horgan, uh, the premier here in BC, was, was talking about sports coming back. That 17th game uh, that the NFL is, is uh, running for each of their teams, that's an international game. And I think that, that one of the things that he alluded to is that you can expect the Seattle Seahawks to be playing a regular season game in Vancouver now on, on a fairly regular basis. And, and how that ties into the BC Lions and their new ownership, and all of those elements, you know, I, I think it's important for football in Vancouver that we have a healthy CFL team here right. uh, that, that that can draw in 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 the mid twenties. Um, I think it's important for for the grassroots of the game. Um, I think it's important for the universities and the colleges and the. It, it's important for getting back to that ecosystem thing, right? But but the ecosystem isn't going to work if you slam a giant pillar down on it, name the Seahawks, and nothing else breathes right. uh, in, in the community. So um, I think the Seahawks coming in with a with a game uh, almost on an annual basis will will need to find a way to accommodate the existing football community here because I think it's a balancing act for them. They don't have to balance it. They're big enough not to balance it. But it's I think it's a balancing act for them.
3: Well, and wouldn't, and I know there has been, you know, there was the loan the NFL gave the CFL way back when three million dollars. And that in today's in today's money, that, that's nothing. But has the CFL ever seriously entered into a discussion with the NFL on some type of partnership? And and I think it would be in the NFL's best interest if this, to keep the CFL, you know, for a healthy CFL, has there ever been any talk that you know of in terms of, you know, not so much the NFL saving the CFL, but entering some type of partnership that promotes not only well promotes football in general, but also promotes the CFL and to get more fans to come to CFL games.
1: I, I know that the uh, discussions between, the NFL and the CFL in this country through, through NFL Canada, uh, has been really focused on uh, how do we get the word of football out to, to more people, both on the CFL and the NFL side, approaching the sport that football is football and, 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 and more people playing football more kids engaging in the game. It's just generally better for football, but in terms of a formalized arrangement, that isn't there these days, and and uh, as you mentioned, the closest to it was that CFL NFL agreement, as the CFL was pulling out of uh, uh, U.S. expansion and uh, and needed not only that that three million dollars, but s- some of the um, promotional benefit and the alignment with the shield that came with that. That was that was important at that time. Oddly enough. Um, that pushed the CFL into a chapter where they, they, they really uh, marketed and, and focused on um, on alignment with patriotism and waving the flag and, uh, and, and, and being proudly Canadian, radically Canadian. Um, our balls are bigger, that campaign, uh, which, which they were at the time. I got a J5V here. The thing, the thing's as fast. <laughs> Hold on here. Hold on here. There you go. There, there's there's the old '89 J5V. Oh, nice. And just, just just you guys have seen this before. The the viewers haven't seen this. That's the USFL ball. You can probably tell. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. The, these ones were bigger. They're the the, the punter of these. Punters love these. They had mm. they added almost a, a third of a yard to your punting average. Um. But anyway. Um. So. You know, uh, the CFL got away uh, from that under Jeffrey Orridge. And uh, I don't see this current group right now, uh, knowing that how, how uncertain the path is forward for, for, for the CFL. Um, and they may need to rely on the XFL. They may, may need to rely on, on something that looks totally new. Uh, really pursuing that, that patriotism angle.
3: Well, you know, well, and, and on that subject, our last podcast, <laughs> we had Chris Willis from NFL Films. And, you know, I mean, I think everybody, whether in Canada or in the States, grew up on NFL Films. If yeah. it weren't for NFL Films, I don't think the NFL would be as big as it is now. And has the CFL ever tried to do something with, say, the CBC to have something similar to market the game? And the second part of that is if they... Do you think they would look at doing it now?
1: Well, oddly enough, that that agreement that you were talking about in the late nineties and early two thousands incorporated some level of NFL films coming up and shooting up for a couple of years. Really, and and so yeah, and some of those um, five to seven minute uh, recaps played in in movie theaters before movies huh. um, as part of a marketing push. But uh, that that's about the extent of NFL films up here one of the things that uh, tsn did in in coordination uh, with the hundredth gray cup uh was they created the engraved on a, uh, on a nation oh, series. Yeah. and, and it's and those it's those are uh, beautiful yeah, documentaries yeah yeah so that's about as close um as as the cfls come to that there was an independent producer that did uh, uh and the name escapes me now scott woodgate was involved in that. It was a it was a team by team kind of legend series in the in in the mid aughts around two thousand five two thousand six, and, and and they were well done and they really tapped into um, uh, Hall of Fame um, archives and, and made the most of that um, in, in terms of in terms of doing something like NFL films. I'm not sure if we moved moved on from NFL films. Quite frankly, I think we got NFL Network now. Well, you know, I we've was, got documentaries. It's, yeah. it's changed. We, we moved into a digital age right. where, where you know. Um, well, I mean, everything, uh, you
3: know, I mean, Amazon, and I'm currently right in the middle of watching a um, series on Leeds United that follows the team. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, like you said, going where you're saying we're in a network type area with that type of stuff being popular. Um, the Hard Knock series, the All or Nothing series. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, to me, I'm like, I'm watching it. And I'm like, well, it'd be great if they have a CFL one. And I think... By the
1: way, ju- ju- just as an aside, if, if, if you haven't seen The Damned United, a movie that came oh, out about a seven Oh, years that's ago. one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? I mean, the, 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 there is a fair bit of fiction in that, but I'm willing to buy into the fiction to to deliver that story. And, and Sheen is outstanding in it. Sorry sorry to take Oh, no, that. no, no, no. Oh, that's, that's, that's,
4: that's great. That's probably not favorite soccer movie it yeah. just, it's just incredible <laughs>
3: yeah. and uh it is it's a great period piece and it's
4: you know english soccer
3: movies are some of my favorite and that one is right at the top of the list that a friend of mine it's well, like well, well, those, those
1: guys from leeds all like there, there's a group of them that played in vancouver at the white caps and led them to the 79 soccer bowl but now we're getting into nasl <laughs> films and like like no let's not go there Let's not go there. All right. <laughs> hey, I'll go there anytime. Just, just. <laughs> if anybody ever wants to
4: talk about that? I'm your guy.
3: <laughs> but going oh, back, Johnny going Giles.
2: Back,
1: yeah.
3: But going back with what I was saying, a hard knock, you know, something like that for the CFL. Uh, uh, to me, I think that would bring in a new generation. Start bringing in a new generation of fans.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they're, you know, with, with the with the resources that they have, they've, they've done some good things in the social media space too, but I think there's there's a lot more to do, and there's yeah. a lot more uh, core story. I, I think what you're talking about is core storytelling. Right. And, and, and you know, the, I was just on a call with my executive director today at Football Canada, and I'm, I'm trying to tell, tell her, have this discussion with her, and she's on board with it now that, you know, if you're not telling your story, you're not, not selling your game, period. It, it's the, the, We're not splitting the atom here, folks. Like, if you're not constantly dedicated to that storytelling, especially now in a universe where there are so many paths to tr- that, that are trying to get your attention, if you're not creating that content yourselves, that's one of the things that, that NFL Films is so far ahead unwittingly of everybody else they're creating that they were content created they're creating their own content like you apply that today everyone's playing catch-up to create their own content and push it out on any number of channels because the most valued thing these days i'll tell you it isn't even content it it it, it isn't it isn't what you flip on and your. it's your attention It, it like have you noticed the uh, demand on your time going up and up and up as we march along in this in this digital world, and, and those things that get your attention and, and take your time away from other things, quite frankly, are the things that have most value. There's a there's a um, uh, a UN uh, community TV project out there that that is being that is being built across the third world, and and sports is a comp- Of it, and they will pay people to watch because attention has value, even if it's only about twenty-five cents or or a cup of coffee. If you watch three soccer games, this is is in in its development stage right now. They're still paying you to watch, and 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 I think that that's kind of where that's kind of what you're talking about right now. Is like it'd be great if the CFL did this. Well, the CFL has to do it to survive. Any. Any Canadian cultural institution needs to be that content creator to get that attention out there. Any corporation, and you know, worth, worth, worth their worth their weight and salt, has to create that 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 content that that engages people because attention is everything.
4: Well, I always try to step back, realizing my age, and realizing that I'm you know I'm not fully on top of everything going on with young people and what they want, but. You know, Greg and I have talked about this so many times. I mean, the appeal of the CFL to us—the rules and the gameplay—I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's almost. It seems like if I was marketing it, I would market almost as a different sport. And I know that's pretty extreme, but it's just such a a cool game with so many unique and wonderful wonderful rules, and that's why we would rather watch football than American football.
3: You know, because but, punters matter.
1: Yeah, they really do. Well, okay, <laughs> guys, yeah, I'm not sure how much you, you follow rugby, right? I love um, rugby. You know, dur- during, during uh, 1999 and 2000, I, I, I was touring through Australia shooting content for TSN prior to the Olympics. So I had the opportunity to, to visit a number of, uh, of towns and suburbs where they played rugby union and they played rugby league. And, and, like, the two could easily coexist. They also had Australian rules there that's, you know, played on the 220-yard circular pitch. But, you know, the difference between rugby union and rugby league, That there are some that just stayed in one camp or the other. But most people in Australia, they'll watch both. It, it's, right. not, it's not the end of the world to watch a good league game and a good union game. And, right. if anything, if I, if, I were in the, if I were in the CFL's camp right now, I'd be looking at ways, and I'd use safety as a motivator in this, to, to, to do things that are innovative, to change the game, to make it more different than its American counterpart. Um, you know, I, the best four-down football is available every Sunday. And the second best uh, uh, four down football is available every Saturday. <laughs> like, it, it, like, it, like the one of the strengths and one of the the, the things that makes the uh, Canadian football so enduring is that it's not lesser; it's different, Absolutely. right? Because it's different, it's the best three down game on earth, right? It's the best 110 yard field. It's the best 65 yard wide. It's the best pre snap motion. It's You know, it's all of those things. It's got the best rouge. I mean, it's it's you know, and the it comes from a place, right? It comes it comes from that 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 that, uh, lawn at the University of Toronto in the in the 1860s when they did some sort of hybrid rugby game, and then that made its way up to Montreal where students played uh reservists um and then that game got played against essentially got played against harvard and and harvard playing fa rules and and then in the second half mcgill picked up the ball (laughs) and that's that's the start of that's the start of what we know as football i mean there was a time there was a time right up until 1912 where you guys in the states played with 110 yard fields and, and until it was realized that, hey, baseball is the sport here and if we want to put our sport on display, we got to put a field in a baseball stadium. That's why you right. have fields the size the, the size you do. It, it, it isn't because uh, the, the, the field that we had was, was superior or inferior. it was just it was just market forces driving right. Well, there's and, a reason why
3: you know you could barely fit a field into Wrigley field. And that's why the bears played there. But yeah, like you said, it's like, if it weren't for for baseball, yeah, probably the fields be a lot larger.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. George Halas always talked about it, about how the field was in Canadian football was, was, it was better for, uh, uh, for the game because it opened things up and, right. and, and always lamented. You bring up the example, actually, like they, they hated, he hated playing in Wrigley field, like the, the walls right there. Like, you know, back in the day when safety wasn't that much of a concern. Right.
3: Right. <laughs> and, you know, just talking even about talking about Halas, I mean, uh, the, the bears have played, you know, a lot of people don't know, but the end there have been NFL versus CFL games with hybrid rules. So, um, Yeah, but like you said, both sports can equally coexist. And yeah, third down football to me, I mean, Canadian football to me, not only is to me the best form of football, but it's also the one thing I love about it is there's that cultural aspect of Canada. And Americans down here don't quite appreciate, at least I don't think so, appreciate the CFL because it's just such a unique Canadian experience um, when I watch it, yeah, it's, it's very uniquely Canadian. I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words, but it's that Canada part of the sport that just makes the reason why I tune in for every game every week.
1: Well, I think, I think you actually nailed it quite well there. I mean, it's in, and in some ways it's the same, same reason, you know, we have a show that follows Canadians in, in college football in the United States. It, you know, it, one of the things that draws me to college football in the U.S. is is the pure regionalism of it. Um, you know uh, how how the Pac-12 is got a different frequency than the SEC, and uh, you know you can you can divide this that side of B 15 ways. Oh yeah, depending yeah, on we'll what be. conference and what lens you look at it through, right? You know, seeing. Seeing Chuba Hubbard and Eamon Ogbong-Bamiga at at Oklahoma State perform the way they did over the last few years was, you know, you want to talk about inspiring. You know, that that was inspiring, I think, for a lot of Canadian kids once we got the story out there, right? Right. So, like, you know, Chase Claypool, he comes from Abbotsford, about two hours away, just in the the lower mainland, starting at Notre Dame uh, at the end of his freshman season and now with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, you know, following those those college stories and, and seeing some of that history. I mean, it goes both ways over the border, right? In right. terms of in terms of getting that that uh, perspective into cultures.
4: Yeah. yeah, with you guys doing the Cornish Trophy, I think that's uh, that's really cool. It's what going into its fourth year. You've uh, you've awarded it what, three times. Now? Uh, it's
1: it's into the into the fifth year now. Uh, Nathan Rourke won it the first two times. Um, quarterback uh, playing. At Ohio and Athens, um, uh, and then Chuba won it uh, last year, and John Mechie the third, uh, the number two receiver at Alabama, uh, won it just this past year. So, uh, I I would have to say John Mechie is probably the odds-on favorite uh, coming into into this year as well. So, yeah, he's you know, get another crack. It, <laughs> yeah, well, and it's funny too because you take a look at the paths these guys take uh, to get into the NCAA, they're all very different. Right. Um, you know, Nathan Rourke, uh, left Ontario, uh, you know, with, with his family and, and, uh, uh, went to, uh, Arkansas, I believe, uh, to, a uh, to a charter school and played there for a year. Didn't like the offers that he went, got, went and played Juco for a year, Found his way to the Mac and, uh, you know, ended up being one of the best uh, quarterbacks of all time in the Mac. I, th- I think you can, you can honestly say that with, uh, with the numbers he produced and the attention that he drew there. Um, uh, Chuba Hubbard, straight out of high school in Edmonton. Like, it, like he was as much of a stir as he was a football player, late adopter to the game in, in, in about grade 10. And uh, and then, you know, was discovered through video and and Chase Claypool – played all his high school uh not not a winner but a runner-up twice um uh and and as a community ball uh but was seen through seven contests and that's how he promoted himself now john matchy he left home in grade nine and, and and did the academy thing and and you know developed on the road the much the same way a lot of American uh, junior hockey players used to by coming up to Canada and playing major hockey when you're 15 or 16 years old. He did the reverse thing. It went down to the States. So there's all kinds of different routes between Canada and and the United States when it comes to developing as a football player.
3: Well, and I always say, you know, when when it comes to football, it's not just, you know, Americans, at least in my opinion, tend to lose sight of the fact that Americans aren't the only ones that are playing ball and that the Canadian, you know, Canada and Canada is a big part of American football history, um, and vice versa.
1: Well, and, and I, I will, I always take this time to point this out as president of football Canada, that the world junior tournament is, is the premier international, uh, uh male tackle tournament. We're the two time defending champions. We've won <laughs> three. Nobody else has won three. You know, I know a lot of people in in uh, the state side say, well, we can't get our best players. We only get, you know, we only get three stars to this thing. And, but you know what? We didn't have Chuba Hubbard there either. We didn't We didn't have our best players uh, in, in a number of positions either, right? Because they're tied up in NCAA camps. You know, uh, it, it's, you know, we've... We found a way. We you know we we got the gold. That, yep. that's okay. Take that. We 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 we're 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 aching to get back at it again after COVID, too, because this world championship's been delayed now for another right. two years and maybe another three. So we hosted in Edmonton in 2024,
3: by the way. Oh, okay. Well that's good, good good excuse for me. Hopefully by then the border will be open up and Scott and I can uh get across there and see Natalie <laughs> – not only you there but also our friends at the turf district so
1: if it, if it's, if it's not open by 2024 <laughs> bigger problems yeah yeah
5: yeah
3: <laughs> well hey jim i jim we really appreciate it and we know uh you know we're uh, we're out of time here but yeah um hey real quickly before we let you go can you let everybody know where they can find you
1: yeah um uh, i am at. Let's see on Instagram, I'm football, Canada, prez with a Z slash Z Um, on, on, uh, on Twitter. I'm Jim Mullen TSN. Let me see. Are there, are there any other places? Uh, Well, I kind of lurk uh, around a few other social media platforms, but those are the two that you can get me at. And uh, I'm actually, I'm quite active on Twitter. Uh, footballcanada.com is, is the website. Uh, I think we still have a couple of game use Canada jerseys uh, left there that uh, can go for a song about $40 a head. There you see, I'm, I'm still trying to sell stuff uh, to, to fund our national teams. Uh, and then, uh, our TV show, uh, on Twitter, it's KGN, uh, on TSN, uh, crown Gridiron nation. Uh, we are going to be pushing parts of that show out on the footballcanada.com site come this fall. So if you're outside of Canada, you'll be able to see uh, parts of that. That'll get you up to speed on uh, university football and junior football in this country and some of the stuff that we're doing around football weekend in Canada in uh, in mid-October and and what our Canadians are doing in the NCAA as well. And of course, you're in Canada watching the thing. We're on TSN uh, middays, uh, starting at the end of August on, um, on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays.
4: Well, this has All been right. fine and informative. It's been great. Yep.
1: Oh, thanks. Yep. I, like I said, guys, it's like where, where the conversation was taking us and, and like, you know, uh, happy to do this at any time. If you, if you want to cover anything else off. All Absolutely. right.
3: Well, thank you very much. And Hey, stay on the line real quickly after we click the stop on the record, uh, just for a few moments and we'll, uh, have a few more words, but Hey, thank you very much for coming on the show. And, uh, this is episode number 10. So episode number 10, you were, you're, you're, you're... <laughs> we, uh, we had our beta, we had our beta show with just Scott and I. So, um, it is the 10th show where we have, have the guests on. And so we're really happy to have you today.
1: Well, I'm going to try to figure out who my favorite number 10 was in CFL history. I... Reggie Slack wore about 15 different numbers. I'm going to say Reggie Slack right now. Oh, no, Rod Hill. Rod Hill is my favorite number 10. Oh, quarterback no. for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers had, uh, had had five interceptions in a single game. He played on the opposite side of Les Brown. Came up from the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Could have gone back to the NFL, but stayed up in Winnipeg. Rod Hill was, was, a, was a supreme cornerback. Love that guy. My favorite number ten.
3: Awesome. <laughs> well, on that note, hey everybody, thanks for joining us, and we will be talking to you soon. Hopefully, we'll have a we'll have a, this show out here shortly. We'll have this show up for download shortly, and uh, we'll be having another show here by the end of the week. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>
5: want to be here in our town when the Grey Cup is played, as things really swing all over town. With all those pep rallies, dances, and the Grey Cup parade, and Miss Grey Cup wins her crown. Let's go, that football train's pulling in. Let's show, we're feeling hearty. You'll know. About to begin, because everybody's invited to the party, and when the crowd starts. All from far and near. and from the moment I up one.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.